my name is Ben Rimmer. I'm the Chief Executive of the City of Melbourne. Uh, it's my very great pleasure to be the MC for this evening. And, of course, my first job as MC is to acknowledge the traditional owners and elders uh, on whose country we're meeting today, the Bunurong people of the Wurundjeri, of the um, Kulin Nations. And uh, when I do that, uh, I like to acknowledge uh, the elders of the past whose unseen hands guide the actions and decisions of today, uh, those of the present working for their communities and setting an example for the next generation, but also the elders of the future, the elders not yet born, the elders who will inherit the urban choreography of the next 30 years. Uh, we're here to launch a book. Um, it sounds so simple, but that book is about um, a city that is a miracle in our modern age. It's a miracle that has transformed this place that we call Melbourne over 30 years. It's a miracle about that, you know, contentious word, livability. Uh, but more recently I saw that Melbourne was nominated by Time Out magazine, that very reputable source, as the world's happiest city, uh, which I thought was... I, I quite liked that one, actually. Uh, and also the world's fourth most exciting city, which... <laughs> Is a little bit perplexing, actually. It's kind of like the fourth most successful um, swimmer or something. Uh, I, I just love this book. Um, I particularly love the photos, uh, the before and afters, the Melbourne reflected in 1982, 1985, and the Melbourne of today. Sometimes I um, talk to people about... Uh, the transformation that's happened, that miracle in Melbourne over the last 30 years. And I describe the, um, the, uh, the impression you get when you stand at the corner of Swanston Street and Burke Street looking up towards Parliament. And that photo is in this book. And 30 years ago, there were effectively no trees, there were lots of cars, and uh, it looked hot, uh, it looked dry... It looked uninviting. There were no European-style cafes or any of that kind of fancy stuff. And, uh, of course, if you flip to 2015, that vista has enormous greenery. Uh, it has, uh, well, at least for people who know about the top end of Burke Street, you can imagine the cafes. Uh, and it looks far more inviting. It looks like a better place for people. Uh, the only problem about describing it as a miracle is that it really misses the point of the story. It's not a miracle. It's actually grit, perseverance, consistency, clarity of objective, inspiration, ambition, capability. It's all of those things. It's not a miracle at all. It's actually hard work, including the hard work of many of the people um, in this room. Well, metaphorical room. Uh, of course, the exemplar of the characteristics that I've just mentioned uh, is none other than Rob Adams, who uh, all of you know, uh, those of you who don't should. Um, and he's really, obviously, a central character in this, uh, in this play. Um, Rob does have some iconoclastic views... Uh, and I just thought I'm going to read one of them out because I really like it. Um, you know, in this age where public service capability is sometimes uh, reduced, where things are contracted out, where things are... Uh, where, where the hardest questions are asked, not of public servants but of consultants, and I can... Um, uh, resonate with this, having played both sides of this particular game. Um, Rob's view is that governments have contracted out their intellect. Through economic rationalism, we think we can get rid of government architects and public works departments, and we can just buy in consultancies. But with every consultant comes a different idea in a small package. Um, 
one of the reasons I've stayed in local government is that, is that to have an in-house capability that actually builds and designs stuff and provides policy advice means that you get good policy advice. Um, that's part of what I love about local government. It's part of what I love about working with Rob and his team and uh, it, I think, reflects Rob's um, capability to run against the times and deliver incredible impact. So with no further ado, I'd like to invite Rob Adams to speak. Thank you, Ben. I'd also like to start by acknowledging uh, the land we gathered on and uh, the, Kulin, uh, the Kulin nations and their elders past and present. And one of the hardest questions in this book was when Kim asked me, how well have we done on that score? And when I reflected on that, uh, the answer didn't come easily. And as we sit here tonight in Queen Victoria Garden, in the King's Domain, and the biggest landscape that's anywhere close to Indigenous is called Royal Park. We're just not getting there. And it's something that we need to address and we need to fix. So I do acknowledge Elders past and present and uh, hopefully we will treat them better in the future. The, the book really didn't start as a book. There's a parallel between this book and the city in a way that there were two people who had a vision of the outcome, and that's Ben Rimmer and Glenn Davis. And uh, they sat down one day and said, you know, we think there needs to be this telling of the story since the early 1980s. And um, there was discussion about what it could be. And like all things that you set out on, it's good if you know where you want to end. You want to end with the telling of the story about this. But it wasn't clear exactly what form it would take. And what has happened over this book is that a number of people have come together. Uh, the first of those was Kim Dovey, who came in uh, from the university side. And uh, Kim and I had a chat about, uh, you know, how, how do you do this? And uh, it then became apparent it could be a book. But uh, it needed to be a book that in, in many ways reflected the city. It's not a story of any one person or any heroic gestures. It's a story of many people over a period of time that have helped change the city we're in. So as you get into the book, you'll read chapters uh, by uh, a number of the authors, and I'll, I may as well go through their names now. So you've got Kate Brennan, who will talk about you know, the culture and the art of the city, and, and uh, Mark Spiller, who will talk about the economics that sit behind the city. David Yenkin, uh, David, it's great to see you here this evening, who really, in the early 1980s with Evan Walker, started this transformation, and uh, will talk, you know, talks about the role that the state government had. Lecky Ord, who comes from a political point of view, and, and uh, talks about those early days, and how the young people of that period uh, started to think about how the city needed to change. And um, you get Jane Hobwin talking about the Crows, uh, the fantastic community planning work that they did, and uh, the influence they had right back in those days that's flown through to today. Peter Elliott, um, I think we know Peter's skill in just putting pieces of city together, and uh, RMIT will always be a legacy. But RMIT is a, a microcosm, I suppose, of what was happening in the city as a whole. Um, maybe uh, less uh, interference uh, because there was guidance from uh, the many vice-chancellors who went through RMIT. And I was just saying to Margaret this evening that you know her leaving legacy at RMIT, which is the academic street, is a fantastic addition to that fantastic university. And... Um, who have I left out? James Green and, and Glyn did a, a, a piece on the university and the role of the university in the city. And I think sometimes we don't think of our city as a university city, but that's what we are. Just as Oxford and Cambridge are university cities, we are a university city. You know, and, and a lot of the change that has happened over the last 20, 30 years 
has been as a result of the two universities and the many universities who have actually dragged the energy back into this city. Jan Gell uh, writes a piece at the start, and uh, Jan is very much a part of the story. Uh, when the city started working uh, on this exercise, and I don't want this to be about the city, but I think I need to tell the story, um, we were working on the incremental, the small, you know, widening footpaths, planting trees, you know, doing some street furniture. And uh, Nathan Alexander, who uh, was working for me at the, uh, at the time, came to me after about eight years and he said, you know, Rob, nobody's ever going to notice what we've done. It's all that small stuff and it's like being in a warm bath. It'll just slowly warm up and people will never notice the change. And I said, uh, at the time I remember my first thought is, Nathan, we're too bloody busy to worry about this. But then, as I usually do, I think before I open my mouth, or I hope I do, um, that might not be the case tonight. Um, but uh, I said, well, who do you recommend that we actually get to help us in this? And he said, oh, there's this guy in Copenhagen called Jan Gell. And we went into a relationship with Jan, and, and he showed us how to record and, and what to record, and also was a huge advocate for the city. If one person has sold the city around the world, more than anybody else, it's been Jan. Whenever he's asked, where do you go to see how a city changes, he says, you need to go to Melbourne. So he's, he's written a chapter. So you get these chapters in the book that talk about the many aspects of Melbourne, and that's the way we wanted it. They're then... Other parts. So as a city, you can enter the story from many areas. You can read any one of those chapters if that's your interest. Or you can go to some prose that's in there from um, various authors who've written about uh, Melbourne, people like Shane Malone. Um, or you can enter uh, through essays by both Ron Jones and Kim Dovey that talk in more depth about aspects of that city. And... and uh, I want to mention, Ron, because very soon after Kim and I sat down and we started talking about what this could be and how it needed to be a bit like a city that you could enter from many ways, um, I said, I don't think I can do this without Ron. And if I'm honest, I don't think I could have done much of what I did in the city without Ron. Um, <coughs> Ron worked with us for, I think, 14 years and then got fed up with the bureaucracy and, and left and, and we've, we've dragged him back in, uh, kicking and screaming, and it's only part-time, but his part-time is full-time. Um, and, and there's a beautiful piece in this by Ron, and I know I'm going to embarrass him, but he is one of the unsung heroes of this city and the change that has actually taken place over 35 years. Um, Kim said to me, I don't think you can write, Rob, so I'm going to interview you. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought, that's fair enough, he's absolutely right. Um, and so we did uh, a series of interviews at Mario's, and they called the Mario's Talks. And uh, over breakfast, over many weeks, um, we talked about the city. And then uh, I've got to acknowledge Kim's work. Uh, an enormous amount of work that he did in pulling that together to make some sense of it. Um, for me, it was a very uneasy exercise because I, I like to sort of chuck, uh, structure things in a certain way. Um, and it, the, the Mario's talks, there is a structure, but they, they, they come from all over the place, and it, it is uneasy. But um, I, I think, Kim, a remarkable job, and it's something different in the book and, uh, you know, something that's exciting. So that's the structure of the book. You'll find it, you'll, you, uh, and then there are page uh, or chapter separators that have photographs that are related to all the chapters, and it is a bit like the city. It, it's a bit messy, in a nice way. Um, you can discover things you think you might not have discovered. Um, you know, there, there's a whole lot of way of entering it. But now to the book. Why, why urban choreography and, and why this particular book at this particular time? And I think it's the realisation that too often the incremental actions that take place in a city are overlooked. And um, they are on a daily basis, the thing that changed our cities. We can have grand projects and they're important, um, but they, they usually change an area of the city or a small area of the city. Federation Square changes the city and changes the entrance. But when you lay bluestone through the whole city or you plant trees through the whole city or you, you have a street furniture suite that's actually designed like by people like Ian Dryden, you get, you get this 
feeling of a city that's actually got some order about it but allows the chaos still to happen. And, and it seemed important to tell the story about incrementalism, that if you don't have the right framework that allows every daily decision to make the city slightly better, then the possibility is you're making the city worse by every decision that you make. And I think we need to recognise the importance of that framework. And sometimes that framework becomes too complicated and doesn't allow that consistency of decision-making. And I think we might be at that period at the moment where, you know, we've got a really exciting young team at the City of Melbourne and, and they're looking at the Melbourne strategic statement and you just get the feeling that there's going to be a redefinition of what the city is in, and recognition of those small incremental actions. So this, this book is about uh, a lot of people who have choreographed a lot of actions over a long period of time and through that have changed the city. And uh, that, that, I think, is a remarkable feat and it's a very Melbourne thing. Uh, I sort of look at Melbourne and, you know, no icons. Melbourne is through its own secrets, individuality, its own icon and I think that is quite special. So... I'm going to thank a few people. Um, I've thanked uh, Ben and, and Glyn who started this and uh, if I'd realised how much work it was going to be, I think Kim, Ron and I would have told them to keep it. Um, Charmaine Walker who uh, worked in our office and put a lot of the research into it. Kate Jackson uh, who has uh, been a tireless advocate right up to just before she's about to have a baby here this evening. I hope it doesn't happen this evening, Kate. And has done so much to make this book happen. And Ros Reimer, who has collected a lot of the material at the City of Melbourne. From the university, there's Glyn, obviously, as Vice-Chancellor. Um, Daryl LeCrew, who's the former Dean of Architecture, who supported this. Um, Emma Adams, not related, who was um, one of the research assistants and, and did a lot of work. Melina Durek and um, uh, Elika uh, Pafka, I hope I've got that right, who did a lot of the maps that are on the, um, in the book. MUP have been an absolute delight to work with. Can I say that, uh, Kathy, as you limp along on your crutch this evening, um, having recovered from a dog having run through her, um, I, I come from a, a family that has editors and publishers, and uh, you've been an absolute delight. You've, you've given us inspiration, support, and that's, I think, what is needed. I think you need to support people like us who feel slightly daunted by this task. Stuart Geddes, I haven't seen Stuart here this evening. I hope he's here. Uh, did a fantastic job on the graphic book design. Peter Elliott, who not only wrote a chapter but helped with a lot of the illustrations. Uh, Kate and Bill Nicholson from uh, Streamer, who did some of the maps and really helped us get through that. And I've mentioned all the contributing authors. I'd like to end by thanking all the people we can't thank. Uh, the people who've worked in all the departments, um, in all areas of government, in private sector, who have actually given the city uh, so much over this uh, 35 years. And as I look around this evening, there's so many of you here, and if I actually started in that corner, and I started with Fiona, um, who's been my PA for uh, longer than she would like to remember, I would then have to almost go through two-thirds of this audience and, and, and recognise them. So I'm not going to do that because we haven't got enough time. So thank you, and uh, I hope the book has some meaning for you. Um, thank you, Rob. Uh, next, we're going to have a panel discussion and I'd like to welcome the four panellists uh, um, to the stage. Uh, the first is Lecky Ord. Uh, Lecky has, um, as many of you know, been um, massively involved in community organisations in this city over the last 40 years. Uh, she's worked as an architect uh, and in a number of other capacities. And from a City of Melbourne perspective, of course, um, she served as a councillor for six years and was Lord Mayor in 1987-88, um, the first woman to hold that position. Uh, please welcome Lecky. Um, 
Our second panel member is Kate Brennan. Uh, Kate uh, has... Uh, well, Kate added enormous value to a meeting I was involved in this morning. So um, uh, Kate is well known uh, to many of us for her capability in terms of bringing um, strategic advice to complex problems about the city. Uh, obviously, um, she's well known for her role as CEO of Federation Square. Uh, she did at one stage work at the City of Melbourne for some time. It's not a it's not a club. Just pointing that out, Uh, but she's um, served as uh, Deputy Chair of the Committee for Melbourne and um, numerous national and international cultural bodies, some part of the Australia Council, if I remember correctly. Uh, Please welcome Kate Brennan. Um, Third member of the panel is Ron Jones. Um, Rob's really introduced Ron already. I won't say... It's pretty hard to follow that. Um, Ron uh, runs a a firm called Jones and Whitehead, landscape architects, urban designers. Uh, He's an adjunct professor at RMIT and he's all the things that Rob has already said about him. Uh, Please please welcome Ron. And... Finally, um, Kim Dovey. Um, Kim obviously has been a key uh, feature in this book, behind this book, a driving force behind this book. Uh, Kim is Professor of Architecture and Urban Design at the University of Melbourne, uh, where he um, has been the Head of Architecture and Urban Design at different stages. Um, He's published and broadcast widely on social issues to do with architecture, urban design and planning. Please welcome Kim. So I'm pretty confident that this panel will be able to keep talking for some time. But I wanted to start with Lecky by asking what this all looked like from the perspective of 1985. And was it evident then that we were about to start the journey that we've subsequently been on? Thank you, Ben. Uh, I don't need to get up, do I? No, good. Um, Look, I think that there were a lot of uh, opportunities and challenges at that time. And I'd like to briefly go through the opportunities first. Um, And the first one was that we were a new council coming in in 1982. When I say new, uh, the council had been dismissed uh, several years before. So of the 18 councillors who were elected, I think only three of them had been on the council before. So, we were a whole new group. We were young. <laughs> Looking at Trevor. Yes, we were, we, were, we were young then. Most of us were in our 30s and 40s. And we were very focused on planning. That was our thing. So, I don't know whether it was inevitable, but certainly it was... Um, generally speaking, that was going to happen. I mean, we, were, we were wanting to get the city happening again. There were also very good relationships, working relationships between a lot of the councillors. Um, so we, we knew each other, we knew our strengths and weaknesses, we could work together. Um, we were, had ward councillors in those days, so we were very focused about uh, not just our own patch, but its place in the whole city and we really felt that the, the capital city role of the council was important and that the communities that made up the actual city corporation were very important as well and an important part of that. Um, We were also uh, too naive to see any any opportunities for corruption or influence. So we just sort of got around the table and worked hard and didn't, I don't think, looked at the wider picture of of what municipal government can be in, in some cases. We also had the opportunity of a new state government. Uh, That was both a challenge and an opportunity. Uh, We had good working relationship with Evan and David. We were um, really trying to bring uh, a new perspective to Melbourne. The revitalisation of the inner suburbs that was happening at that time um, 
led to a more active and informed residents' associations. So they were basically, uh, well, initially they got together usually to either oppose the Housing Commission or the, or the Roads Corporation. So they were very strong uh, at working together and putting through uh, alternative futures from uh, raising the uh, terrace houses and putting up high-rise or building freeways down Alexandra Parade. So we'd been looking at alternative uh, planning uh, already before we even got onto council. Also, um, I think a great opportunity was that in the reconstruction of the council, we had argued for and achieved uh, fixed three-year terms for council. Now, you might all look around and say, well, what else would you do? And the thing was that before that, the Melbourne City Council had gone to election every year for one of three ward councillors and it would just rotate it. And so you never had... Um, you never had a group of people who had to look at each other in the eye and say, we have to work together for the next three years, what are we going to do? Because every August, the numbers changed. And that was, um, you know, a recipe for instability, shall we say, to put it politely. So we took on the restructuring of the administration. Um, we took... We uh, said goodbye to a couple of... Admit, senior administration, people who'd been there for a long time and said hello to some new people who thought the way we did and had values that were congruent with ours. Uh, for example, we, we selected a head of transportation who actually didn't like roads very much and he was... Um, we said, well, that, that's good, we don't either. And so we, um, we really brought in transportation that didn't involve cars. Cars were not our first priority. But the challenges, um, again, looking back, it seems quite hard to understand, but there, were, there was no real appreciation of the heritage and the, in the building stock of Melbourne. And a number of the, the councillors had worked very hard on the Collins Street Defence Group to try to stop the demolitions, but there was no uh, heritage overlay or planning that would stop that. Our particular council was um, exercised for <laughs> quite a while uh, on a very famous uh, town planning case called the Wade case where a um, planning approval had been given for a house in, in Parkville to remove its heritage facade and put a new modern swanky architectural facade on the top. And there was no way of, of actually uh, overcoming that at the time. So when we were elected, the first thing we did was to sort of basically race down to Evan Walker and say we need heritage protections. Uh, studies were done throughout the whole municipality to actually look at the streetscapes and the individual buildings and give them some heritage protection. Um, it, you know, it seems like a long time ago, frankly. One of the other um, issues that was a move by corporations to the suburbs and Battlestar Galactica in Taronga is the result of Coles saying we are moving out of the city, we want uh, big floor space, we want to move out of the city, we want you to rezone uh, that land in Glen Iris or whatever the suburb is there on Taronga Road and, um, and if you don't do that, and this was to the state government, if you don't do that, we'll move our headquarters to Sydney. And that was, I won't say it was common, but that was the attitude uh, of business that, in fact, the central city was no place to have your office. So we, we all had to work very hard to, to stop that sort of uh, thing cascading from Coles. And I think that really they were the only ones who, who finally took that decision. Uh, one of our last challenges, I guess, was the, the planning con that I want to speak about today is the planning controls. Um, the planning controls for decisions on central city buildings were taken away from the council by the state government probably um, 
six or seven years before. And getting those controls back was one of the things that we considered to be a, a major challenge. And it hasn't happened. Um, there, I think there have been various incarnations of joint planning control committees and so forth, but that has never been uh, ceded back to the council. There wasn't a lot of population growth, and, and the book goes into this too, that, that we didn't have big budgets like I consider the council now has. Um, they seem to find a way to spend it, no doubt, but um, with, a, with a, a lower population, um, rates were high and things were fairly tight. So our, our ambitions were pretty um, constrained. But our first ambition was to update the strategy plan and that's what I've talked about in my chapter of the book. Fantastic. Thank you, Lecky. So, Kate, in, um, in the 80s, Melbourne's creativity culture was, to some extent, defined by international imports. Since that time, I mean, I, I, I'm young enough to remember, old enough to remember the Spoleto festivals. Um, since that time, creativity, innovation has really blossomed here. There's knowledge work, etc., etc., to what extent has that been part of the Melbourne story over the last 30 years? To what extent has that arts and creativity and innovation piece been part of this story? I think the short answer is that absolutely critical. And um, in answering the question, I'll say it was perhaps a little curious that um, I was asked to write a piece for the, for the book around public art because I don't think there's anybody here or indeed in the broader city who would think that I had a lot of expertise in visual arts but I, I can say what I think I am an expert in is culture and, and the public realm and the real uh, achievement for Melbourne has been I think the intersection of the public and the art. Now in answering the question you have to understand that um, my definition of art is really about symbol and meaning and story and not about objects in space. Um, I have a, an absolute um, position that says, uh, unfortunately, what was the public experience of art you know, in a cave or in storytelling um, changed considerably in Western culture when it became a symbol of um, power and influence and status. Um, think court and, and church music. And I think the important thing that's happened in Melbourne has been a transition from a fairly antediluvian view of the way we experience art to one which brings people's access to art and their experience of art together. Um, and that has enabled um, an incredible democratisation of the way that not only we understand our culture and everybody else's culture, but the way that we experience and understand the city. That, for me, has come about through, um, as Rob was saying, a consistent and insightful and quite sophisticated way um, that the city, the public realm the arts community and artists have engaged with each other over a period of time. And one of the things for me, particularly with my um, Federation Square experience, our growing understanding of the co-ownership of the public realm between the city and an authority, any authority, has been one of the critical aspects in freeing up that intersection between people's experience of art and the, their access to it. I was around um, in the 90s when the city endorsed what was available to it then, which was a percent for art policy. And I've been arguing the case over 25 years for um, people to work with artists and arts organisations and it's really gratifying to me um, to read in the city's art, public art plan, and I'm going to quote it, is that 
not only do they support um, multiple access and uh, modes of experiences of art in the public realm, but their aim is to move, inform, inspire or amuse people and to bring on new ways of seeing and being. They say they want public art in Melbourne, just like the weather, um, to become part of the everyday conversation. And with a lively public art program, the the municipality offers larger opportunities to explore and realise our full human potential. Um, Today, this city offers so many opportunities for the realisation of our potential, but it wasn't always the the case. Just as an official, who I don't think is sitting here today, commented to me in the 90s, why would anybody want to drink their coffee on the street? Um, When I started working at the city, my meagre half a million dollar budget was allocated to clearing bird poo off sculptures, relegating um, community arts activities to the neighbourhoods and caring for valuable, if inaccessible, assets. Imagine Melbourne now without the Indigenous cultural presence, without street arts, memorials, monuments, fireworks, street sculpture, festivals, illuminations... M M Pavilion. M Pavilion, roadside and guerrilla art multiple languages, sound and landscape interventions, forums, performance events, visual and digital installations and interventions and all the related accolades and controversy. Imagine what our city would be without, without all of that. Those things have all now become an expected definition of our place, our quality of life, our reputation and um, our identity. All these experiences have underscored, I believe, our growing up as a city. They've reflected and created civic dialogue. I'm thinking of the um, Indigenous boy um, street art in Hosier Lane. That artist inspired by both the Renaissance, he says, and Bart Simpson, um, his purpose is to create discussion and dialogue um, with Indigenous people and within the community. Arts experiences have brought people together with artists who have challenging and interesting insights in the way that we should see the world. And I think of Patrick Doherty's homage environmentally focused to Flinders Street Station um, in the ballroom installation that he did at Federation Square. I also think that these experiences have brought our city into an international frame as bold and brave. So think about Spencer Tunick's naked pose for the Fringe Festival in 2001 and how that resonates in terms of our ability to seize things that are different and challenging and new. And really importantly for me, I think these experiences that have been created by multiple players and multiple co-conspirators and multiple artists and multiple funding bodies over time have really put people, put our community, put the people in this room and the people who walk the streets today looking for the interesting things to do in Melbourne, they've put them in touch with the restorative, enlightening and um, empowering power of art itself. Um, When I say that, I think of a published response to an event that I absolutely adored during my time at Federation Square and that I should have um, quoted uh, in the essay, and I'm sorry that I didn't, so I'm going to read it out to you now. Um, This was um, the published response to the Melbourne Festival's 2007 presentation of the Merce Cunningham Company's dance event at Federation Square, which was um, for the first time um, shown internationally on screens and enabled people to text to Merce Cunningham's studio in New York. And Linda Marie Walker said, I went to the Melbourne Festival to see the Merce Cunningham Dance Company. The event was performed on two white raised stages a little apart with a matted red passage between them. The music committee accompanied the dancers on a stage nearby. A screen above showed the the performance close up. For the viewer, the scene was rich, looking between each of these and at the audience too. Overall, the given situation, 
the square, the sky, the helicopters reflected the overall philosophy of the Cunningham Way. That is, that there are multiple points of view and that distraction can happen at any time and in any direction. There were thousands of people and the square was a perfect venue and the weather was perfect, hot and overcast and still, rain hovering, and the performance was a perfect experience, an extremely moving event. The 14 dancers used both stages, performing solo or together, and changing stages, the running between the stages, part of the action. The event was about the event of dancing, the whole scene. We were in it and of it, and the dancers were twisting and bending, unfolding, standing still, raising fingers, finding synchrony. And if we want to achieve a city that is harmonious, which is exciting, which is empowering, they're the sort of experiences that we have been creating here in Melbourne and that we need to continue to embrace and support in their ever-evolving and ever-nuancing forms. So thank you. Thank you, Kate. So I've, I've just done a quick squeeze around the room and I reckon there are at least 20-odd people here who have worked for Rob Adams, uh, one of whom is Ron Jones. And, uh, Ron, I'd like to ask you about two ideas and the interplay between those two ideas. The first idea is Rob Adams. And the second idea is design quality. Unfair question, um, <laughs> the first one. Um, I mean, look, uh, Rob is... Um, a, he's a long-time friend for me now, a good mate. Uh, we've worked a long time together and we've worked hard together on some important projects, I think. Um, I think Rob's skill in representing the values, the representing what's important about how a city comes together, how to make it better being able to project that, convince councillors. I mean, with people like Lecky and Trevor, there wasn't a lot of convincing that needed to be done, actually. Um, Rob was just kind of obliging, I think, <laughs> in those days. Um, but he, he knew how to work with a community of people who were involved in shaping the city and... Um, I think that's an extraordinary skill that, um, that he's brought to Melbourne. Um, I think I'd probably better leave it at that. Second question about... What was your second question about? Design quality, um, which is the real Dorothy Dixer. Um, now, I, I mean, I think the question of design quality is interesting because people think it's difficult because it's subjective. And I think they're right. Design quality is subjective. Um, but you need to bear in mind that um, even Isaac Newton's laws of physics are now have been recognised since Einstein as being subjective, that once you get close to the speed of light or you when you operate at the scale of quantum mechanics or if you get too close to a black hole, Newton's laws go rubbery. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not useful. I mean, we don't move at the speed of light, we don't work at the scale of quantum mechanics and we don't usually cosy up to black holes except in a metaphorical sense is when I agreed to work on this book. Um, so subjectivity isn't really the problem. I think the problem is not being clear in, in terms of an, an assessment of design quality. It's not being clear what it's your, your assessment or your consideration is subject to. And it's, it's, I sort of feel like I'm doing... Um, briefing a high school debating team, you need to find, define your terms of reference. You need to say, well, what, what are the, the real values you're worried about? Um, and I think um, if you're talking about urban design specifically and not all sorts, not all other kinds of design, not, not everything about architecture, not everything about landscape architecture, not everything about sculptural quality in, in art, I mean, there are some pretty widely recognised 
basics of urban design, and this is a Friday night, and the gardens is not the place to do urban design 101. Um, but I, I, I guess one example um, is one, an obvious thing is we want public spaces to be physically comfortable for people to be in. And one thing that, ad, that affects that is potentially wind blowing off enormous tall buildings. Um, and um, that, like many other considerations in urban design, is something you can actually measure, you can quantify it, there are accepted benchmarks around how you make your assessment. And, and with, with WIND, uh, Mel Consulting have effectively established benchmarks as to when the wind downdrafts off a tall building will blow the froth off your cappuccino and make a curbside cafe unworkable. And if you've got that benchmark and you've um, got a wind tunnel, you can put your row of 200 meter plus high towers along Elizabeth Street in the wind tunnel, do a test, and come up with a very clear uh, urban design assessment about that quality. I mean, there's nothing, you know, it's, it's obviously subjective. It's, it's subjective to your concern about amenity, physical amenity, but you can be absolutely clear about that kind of assessment. So um, subjectivity is not a problem. It's, it's an issue of being clear about what you want to do. Um, I'm not saying that, I mean, the, the basics of urban design are not everything in cities. There are lots of other things that um, shape urban design outcomes that shape the city. Um, some of them you might not think they would. Um, one of them is the the voice people get, the community gets in 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 decisions about what's built, what isn't built, how it's built. Another is um, the requirement to to go through competitive tendering processes in in um, public works and public um, acquisitions and things and engaging consultants and both of those things are relevant, um, quite topical issues in relation to Federation Square at the moment. Um, there are also issues I think of um, equal justice under the administration of planning controls which I actually don't think is done very well in Victoria because of the sort of obsession with being um, flexible and having um, discretionary controls which immediately bring in opportunities to treat different, pe different people differently um, and inequitably. But anyway, I mean those, they're all concerns but if you try to mash all those together in, into an urban design asses assessment, it can't. If you, if you turn everything into a great big mental bubble and squeak, you, can't get, you won't get anywhere. So you need to focus on a few things that are specific to the topic you're looking at. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, basically, I think that, I mean, if, if you have problems with, say, putting your finger on urban design quality, it's because you're trying to put your finger on too many things at one time. Thank you, Ron. So, Kim, um, it, it, it's a commonplace, uh, certainly in this crowd, I'm sure, to say that Melbourne is different, that Melbourne has some kind of unique characteristic. Um, if that's true, what is it that drives that difference? What is it that sits beneath that difference? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, and thanks for not tossing me one of those questions you just threw to Ron. Um, <coughs> I... Um, this is in danger of, of turning into Urban Design 101, but I will keep it to my five minutes. Um, I think the first thing I would say is that I think something has gone seriously right in Melbourne over the last 30 years or so. A bit over 10 years ago, I published a book um, called Fluid City, which was about Melbourne, and, and it was unrelentingly critical of a lot of stuff that was happening um, in parts of South Bank and Docklands and other places. And... This is actually the missing chapter. There was meant to be a chapter on the central city in that book that would have balanced it and made it a bit less critical, but it never got written. And in some ways, I come to this because I think there's something to learn that is positive. And I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think that this book actually will reach a much wider audience and indeed will help to uh, codify and clarify some of the uh, things that have gone right. It, it, this thing to me that not only... Um, 
in Rob Adams' brain, but also in the, some of the things that we've done in Melbourne, there's quite a lot of intellectual capital that's actually not out there in the academic literature, which is about the way in which urban design actually happens in practice. And a key to the way in which it happens, I think, is the idea of incrementalism. The alternate title, or one of them for this book, was Incremental Urbanism, the idea that, that cities change slowly, that you need a, a great deal of patience and a kind of a relentlessness as well as some deep thinking about how cities work. Um, my version of Urban Design 101 is that every city has what, it might, what I call an urban DMA, not DNA, DMA, density, mix and access, these three key things. And uh, I've known Rob for a long time and I know that these are key for him too, that with uh, character and the quality of public space uh, added on top. Density, of course, is what brings people and places closer together. It brings them within walking distance, um, crucially. And this story has been one of increasing densification of the central city. But density, of course, is a double-edged sword because density untrammeled can actually kill the character of the city. It can kill the emergence of the what, what I call urban intensity or the urban buzz. So managing density and this is, remains a challenge for parts of our city where that um, particularly building height uh, has not uh, been managed as well as it could. Um, the mix, the, sec the second of these, it's, it's no point in having density if there's not things to walk to. And so it's really about a mix of lots and lots of different kinds of people and places uh, within a short um, walking distance. And this has been another part of Melbourne's success story. Going back to the Postcode 3000 project in the 1990s, we've seen uh, residential development coming off an extremely low base where hardly anyone lived in the central city to the point now where the challenge is to stop the overdevelopment of residential development in the city and stop it from displacing other uses. So there's a, Melbourne has been transformed from one where there were monofunctional zones, a financial district, a retail district, where nothing else happened, to a city where people live, work and play everywhere. That's how good cities work. That's how you generate an urban buzz. But that doesn't work in turn without good access networks. And access, of course, is sometimes walking access, sometimes trams, sometimes cycling, sometimes cars, sometimes trains, and very often a complex mix of all of them. I think one of the success stories of Melbourne has been to understand the positive feedback cycle that happens when you incrementally take space back from the car, one lane and one car park at a time. And that gets people out of their cars because they can't get parking and they get onto public transport and that stimulates the pedestrian life. And then, of course, you need more pedestrian space more plazas and um, more public space. And, of course, less cars enables... If there's less cars, you can take even more space back from cars. So there's a kind of a cycle there that's long and very slow and it's done in such a way that the bathwater warms up very slowly and uh, there is no revolution uh, in the process to stop it. It's gone on for 30 years. This is a 30-year story that's outlined in this book. And it is a story of incremental change that is transformative in its overall capacities. Getting to Ben's key point there, I suppose, which is that, OK, it's not just about... I mean, every city has some kind of DMA and it and can be changed. It's not like your DNA. Uh, you can change the density, the mix and the access networks of the city to make it work better. But what is it that makes Melbourne different? What gives it that character, that buzz, that sense of place, that atmosphere? Well, these are very deep and complex questions that we're not going to be able to answer here tonight. But I would say one thing, which is that Melbourne has been lucky in some ways to inherit this strange nexus between a formal grid and an informal network of laneways. Now, this was in part inherited, but it has also developed enormously over the last 30 years. And most of those laneway revitalizations, you know, people ask, oh, well, who's, who's responsible? You know, did, did Jan Gell come in and, and, and make the laneways happen? Well, it's much more the, the very large number of people uh, and organisations, including street artists, who have worked within those laneways and, in, in some cases, the city uh, turning a blind eye 
much more than actually adding new urban design projects, which can become a problem for that. But for me, the, the character of Melbourne is very much about that intersection between the formal grid and the informal, uh, and there's different kinds of enterprises and different kinds of people in those different places, and they come together in the city and generate that buzz. That is the access network. You look at the um, accessible pedestrian network in Melbourne, that's the access. But those, um, that relationship between the two grids, of course, and the, the idea of a top-down um, urban planning framework and then a kind of a self-organised uh, bottom-up network of street artists who are also helping to generate the city. Um, that gets reflected, I think, at a higher level in a tension between what I would call neoliberalism and markets. Now, most people don't see it that way. They see neoliberal regimes of, of political, uh, political and economic regimes as being strongly identified with markets. But in another sense, markets produce cities. The markets in street art, mar markets in pedestrian activity, markets in street trading and, uh, and all kinds of things like that contribute enormously to the city and yet there's this danger from the escalations that happen with a kind of an unbridled, deregulated markets at the larger scale. Trying to manage that tension, I think, has also been one of the success stories. Not everywhere in central Melbourne. We talked before about the height problems in some cases. Um, but in many cases, there's this creative uh, juxtaposition of um, markets and capitalism that adds vitality rather than killing the city in the way in which so much neoliberal development does. You only have to look at parts of South Bank and Docklands and see the damage that um, it can cause. So in that sense, I want to say that uh, in the end, I don't think what's responsible for this, this is a, a very complex story. It's not a story of uh, single agents and it's certainly not a story of uh, big urban design projects coming in and bringing about major transformations. It's a slow, incremental one, and I would um, add um, my praise, too, to Rob Adams' role um, in this uh, over the last 30 years, a kind of relentless pursuit with great integrity uh, in often difficult circumstances to make this happen, uh, to quote or, or misquote probably um, an old Jane Jacobs uh, quote, that the city is, is made. Where does the urban buzz come from? The city comes from lots and lots of people with different bees in their bonnets, uh, all in the same place at the same time, and that's Melbourne's urban buzz here. Um. Hello. <laughs> uh, so, thank you, Kim. Uh, very briefly, one sentence. What will be important about this book in five years' time? You can choose who goes first. Can I say that I hope it's important because not just the people here... Um, but people you know and people who are thinking about cities have read it and started to think about what we've left out and what are the um, important things for a city in 50 years that might have 8.5 million people, people in it. So it might be a historical reference that looks at the good and um, people have used to chart the future. I'm not sure that was one sentence. I'm going to shock Ben and say it's going to be about governance because he knows that this is my strong point. <laughs> if what comes out of this is a realisation of the importance of having intelligent government and recapturing the intellect within government so we can be intelligent clients, then it would have achieved something. I think um, I, I particularly like history. I'm really interested in history because it makes me think about what, how things are now and what might happen in the future. And I, and I think that's the value of this. It's, it's, I would hope that people look at what has happened and think of what they might do in the future. 
I would hope it will be history in five years' time because Melbourne is not finished. Okay, we have got a very dynamic city that changes very fast. I would hope others might be inspired by this book to write another one, maybe not in five years, but in 10 years or 30 years, yeah. All eyes on me. I think, uh, I hope it's not remained it in five years' time. <laughs> I, it's, a great, it's a great book and a very interesting read. Um, so I think it explains something about Melbourne. Let's hope uh, that you all enjoy it. Thank you, Lecky. Um, finally, we have Professor Glyn Davis, uh, who, um, as many of you will know, is Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. And Glyn, I believe, is going to officially launch this book. Ben, thank you very much. Uh, you understand how cleverly Rob has worked, you and I. So Ben and I had a conversation about a year ago about how can we celebrate Rob Adams, because that was what we did. And I told Ben about this German academic tradition, a Feschrift. And in a Feschrift, you get a group of authors to write about somebody's work and then apply it to their own area of expertise. And so we, we discussed a Feschrift for Rob Adams, and I talked to Kim, and you know, on we went. Rob has skillfully turned this into a book about Melbourne <laughs> and just retreated and retreated and retreated until he's hardly there. Um, but in fact, this is a book about Rob Adams and that's what we set out to do and about his legacy and about everything he's achieved. The city isn't just Rob Adams. I mean, lots of praise is due to people who worked with him, who enabled him, who encouraged him and who pushed him to do things that even he hadn't thought of. Um, and there are people in the room who did that, and that's really important. And it's a book about a city that's just a fantastic collection of different people, and you can see them in this room and everywhere else in this city, and that's what really matters. I mean, anyone can do tolerance. Tolerance is easy, but inclusion is hard. Making a city that feels like it belongs to everyone who's there, no matter how different. There's a lovely quote in the book from Shane Maloney, He's describing Sydney Road and he describes it, quote, Melbourne's main north-south axis is a clotted artery of Suvlaki joints and low-margin, high-turnover businesses. Half the Mediterranean basin has been depopulated of its optimists in order to line Sydney Road with freewheeling enterprise. It's, it's a lovely description of the city. It captures something of the vibrancy. It captures a lot about inclusion, that... Sydney Road works, um, whether it's Suvlaki, whether it's Turkish wedding uh, outfits, it's just fantastic. And here it is in this city, and it belongs to all of us, as well as belonging to the individuals who make that part of it work. And that, I think, is the achievement. The book starts in 1985, and it describes a city that doesn't know it has a river, uh, and specialises in putting very large, ugly buildings in as central positions as possible in order to exclude other development. And the great part of the book is the photographs, the 1985-2017 photographs. And there's lots of them, just stray corners. This is what this corner looked like. There's one of Pelham Street and Swanson Street uh, in 19, the late 70s and then now. And it's astonishing change. It's a book that captures all of those great Melbourne moments, of which the most memorable, obviously, is ACDC going down Swanston Street, singing it's a, it's a long way to the top, um, which has had 13.9 million individual views on YouTube. It's just 13.9 million people have watched the city of Melbourne <laughs> flash by on a truck with Bon Scott. Um, this is the, the lovely part of this book. It's an academic book that actually isn't very academic at all. It's actually nicely in Rob Adams' philosophy. It captures, it's rigorous and it's careful, but it actually captures something of the fun of the place. Um, there are a lot of the authors here, and I say thank you to every one of them. I want to acknowledge in particular James Green, who's here. James and I had enormous fun writing a chapter about the citizens' jury process of last year that helped set the new priorities for the council. Um, and when Ben and then the Lord Mayor asked me to get involved, I was a, little, a tad sceptical that 50 citizens meeting over four Saturdays could make meaningful views about... Um, 
the city's priorities, and I walked out at the end of four Saturdays. In fact, it was six, because they didn't want to stop meeting, as I recall. Completely convinced that you put a, an intelligent group of Melburnians together from a range of views, a range of ages, a range of perspectives, they've got great things to say, and they did it. They produced a really thoughtful strategic plan for the city. So you can, you can read lots in this book, you can enjoy, you can remember that Rob Adams is meant to be the central subject of the book, whatever he says, uh, and you can celebrate. Um, it really is a great book. So can I thank everybody involved? Can I thank the editors in particular who are here? Uh, and it's, a, it's an honour to launch officially Urban Choreography Central Melbourne 1985 hyphen, <laughs> edited by Kim Darby, Rob Adams and Ron Jones. Thank you, Glyn. That is the end of the formal proceedings for tonight. Can I, uh, on behalf of the City of Melbourne, thank the University of Melbourne and MUP for their collaboration. Uh, I'd also like to thank Fiona and Kate and probably others from the City of Melbourne who helped uh, put this event together. Uh, also, the M Pavilion team who have just run an amazing program over um, this summer. And uh, there's drinks, there's opportunities to talk, there's opportunities to talk to panellists. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for coming. Good night.